Hello, hello. Yes, we're back for another week after the Easter long weekend. Hope you had a lovely one. And a big welcome, Daniel Carrington. Hello, Dr. Hello Kimberly there. Earl. How hello. are you both? We're good. We're fantastic. You never know who you're going to run into at Bunnings, Danny. We had a bit of a Bunnings date, didn't we? We did. We had, we had a bump into Bunnings, didn't we? <laughs> I love Bunnings. You just never know what you're going to do. Or oh, it was nice to, nice to catch up with the fam. It certainly was likewise. Now, look, what are we chatting about today for Pet Chat, Denny? Okay, so look, we often talk about the great things that pets can do for us. So we're going to talk to the co-founder of Integra Service, Dogs Australia, and how they're training dogs to help humans. Oh, really mm. interesting. Sarah, you know one of my favourite topics is to talk about um, breeds of dogs and what they were originally bred to do, mm-hmm. how they help humans. And in the past, we've had lap dogs and we've talked about hunting dogs and all sorts of things like that, and like the Dalmatian that runs beside the carriage yeah. and all that. But these days, we've moved forward to that. I mean, these days, we don't use those dogs necessarily for that kind of purpose, but we use them to assist um, uh, us humans in different ways, could be with disabilities and so forth. So today, I've got co-founder of Integra Service Dogs Australia, Ben Johnson, on the line to talk about the services they provide and how they train their dogs. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thank you for joining us. I guess uh, the first question I think about is, can you tell us about Integra Service Dogs Australia and what uh, it is that you do? Look, Integra is a not-for-profit charity that's been set up by veterans to provide support to Australian Defence Force veterans and first responders who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So what we do, Daniel, is we source uh, and train and develop high-quality Labrador dogs as assistance dogs to work with their handlers, essentially to become fully qualified assistance or service dogs for those handlers over their working life. Wow. And um, uh, my next question was, what type of dogs um, would you be using? And You mentioned Labradors. Well, predominantly we work with Labradors. Um, obviously, as your listeners and, and you would know well, because of their great biddability, their, their focus on training, um, the training model we support is driven by uh, praise, play and food reward training. Uh, so most of the dogs in our program are Labradors. We work with uh, chocolate, yellow and black Labradors. Uh, but on a case-by-case basis, we often look at and assess dogs that uh, handlers might want to bring to the program to see whether those dogs have the right temperament and drive to be developed as an assistance dog. And um, I guess uh, you mentioned that it's to help veterans and, and the organisation was started by, by veterans. So how, how many veterans uh, and first responders have you been able to reach and support over the past two years while you've existed? As a relatively young organisation, we've uh, to date assisted around 20 veterans and first responders. And by first responders, I, I mean policemen and women, firemen, uh, paramedics right across Australia. So uh, the 20 dogs that we've effectively developed, trained and placed with veterans are positioned across five different states and territories. A lot of the men and women we support are in New South Wales. Um, and the model we provide is actually trying to help train and develop those individual handlers to continue over the life of their dog to develop the skills and capabilities of their dog. But our objective is to train the dog to the level of uh, a public access test uh, assessment. 
Ben, in terms of a dog helping a veteran or a first responder, what are the issues that these people are facing and how would the dogs be helping them? Well, quite commonly, Daniel, someone who's suffering from post-traumatic stress will uh, experience conditions around hypervigilance, uh, high levels of anxiety going out into public places and doing things that you and I take for granted in our everyday life. So the sort of training we actually undertake both with the dog and with the handler is to use the dog as an anchor for the, the handler to focus their energy and attention on. Uh, and by the handler focusing on the dog and the dog's behaviour and performance, it helps reduce the anxiety that that individual is experiencing if they're, go- they're going out in a public space or they're trying to achieve a specific set of tasks with the dog. So we train the dogs in everything and the handlers, everything from most basic obedience, uh, you know, on-leash obedience, to um, sit, come, stay, retrieve, uh, right through to skills like clearing a room or clearing a house from a potential perceived threat or, or another individual in the house, retrieving medicine, retrieving phones, car keys, turning on lights. Um, Essentially, the tasking that we work and provide with the handler very much depends on the particular needs of each individual handler. How long would it take to uh, train a dog and how much does that cost to train a dog to that level where you can place it in a home to help these people? So something that's unique about our training model is we actually seek to engage the handler in the training and development of the dog. So typically, most of the dogs we train uh, and place are about two, two and a half years old. At the time, we match them with a potential handler. Um, By that stage, the dog already has a higher level of basic obedience command training. And the the beauty of our program, we think, is that it's not a time-driven training model. So it can take uh, an individual anywhere between three or uh, 12 months to get that dog to the level of capability of meeting the requirements of a public access test assessment. So... We customise the training around the ability of the the individual to take on new tasks and challenges with their dog. And Ben, um, I guess uh, the next question I have with that is, do you get them as a puppy? Do you get that dog as a puppy or does it need to be a puppy? Uh, We deal with uh, dogs of all ages, all young ages. So in some instances we have matched dogs as young as four or five months with a handler and their family. But the majority of our dogs are usually closer to two years old and simply because the dog's more developed and more able to commence active work with the handler. Obviously, uh, the key part is building a strong working bond uh, between the dog and the handler for the first few months of that placement. And Ben, because you are a non-for-profit organisation and doing such a wonderful work, could you let us know and our listeners know if someone wants to help out or get involved, how can they assist or support you? So probably the easiest thing is to to jump on our website, which is uh, www.isda.com.au. That's ISDA. Uh, There's some information there about the work we do, uh, and if people want to get involved in uh, either finding out more information about our program, they can send an email inquiry, they can donate through our website, uh, or they can find out how they can volunteer, because as a not-for-profit charity, we're dependent entirely on donations from the public and, and corporate philanthropy, not, not from funding from government at this time. Ben, thank you so much for your time. It's so lovely to um, see there's organisations like yourself and people like you who are dedicated to help others out. So thank you very much for that. No, thanks very much for your interest and good luck with your show. It's terrific.
So interesting. And it'd be really great to hear the success stories. I'm sure there might be some success stories on that website again, which was www.isda.com.au. Yeah, there's so much more you can talk about these kind of programs, but it is so nice to see how we are using in the modern day now uh, world our pets to Mm. help. And we do have Chris from Butterbar. Welcome to the show, Chris. You've got a question about your 16-year-old cat. That's right. Um, he's a Russian blue. He's a fairly small cat, but he's got a voracious appetite. It's increased in the last probably six or eight months. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't eat much dry food anymore at all, but he likes the wet packets. And we've, we worm him like once every three months and yep. we um, feed him Confortis, like we dose him with Confortis once a month. Sure. Yeah. But I just wondered whether you had any hints. Yep, absolutely. So um, a 16-year-old cat who has a big appetite, in particular if he's losing weight, um, we would always want to have him seen by a vet and have some blood work done on him because our three um, most common old pet diseases are diabetes, hyperthyroidism, so an overactive thyroid, and kidney disease. And almost all of them will cause weight loss. Certainly diabetes <laughs> and hyperthyroidism will cause weight loss in the presence of an excellent appetite. Um, he hasn't lost that much weight. He's yeah. always been fairly fairly small. Yeah, okay. What about water water intake? Do you Have you Any? noticed an increase in water intake? No, I haven't noticed. He doesn't drink that much water. When he does, he'll drink a lot at a time, yeah. but I rarely see him drink any okay. at all. So that's good. I, I would still recommend, if he hasn't yep. had a, a checkout and some blood work in the last um, you know, six or 12 months, I'd certainly recommend getting him up there. Um, just get some, some um, screening tests done because a lot of those yep. diseases are treatable. Um, and can really prolong the life and the good quality life for your cat. So you may not cure them, but um, certainly okay. management can be really important. And, and obviously finding it earlier rather than later is always going right. to um, lead to a better outcome. And I know, Kimberly that um, with my mother-in-law, she has cats and mm-hmm. the same thing. Her cat, mm-hmm. an older cat, just he couldn't, you couldn't fill him and he yeah. was losing so much weight and she was so worried and it was hyperthyroid yep. and um, a tablet a day and he's perfect now. Yeah, they're fantastic. It makes yeah. a really big difference. And hyperthyroidism um, can cause other problems like high blood pressure, which can then cause um, blindness and it can cause kidney disease. And so, you know, a disease like that, controlling it really improves the quality of life for you and for your cat um, and can improve their their longevity as well so it's certainly worthwhile doing good luck with your cat chris hello welcome to the show always love to have your company and we do have doug from fletcher on the line now doug you've got a question about your 12 year old labrador i certainly do guys um just late the past week or so um i've been woken up in the early hours of the morning with the dog uh, yelping and um, walking around the backyard. Um, she's always been an outside dog. She sleeps in a kennel. Um, the first time that I um, she woke me up, I went to the back door um, and she came inside as if she was um, fairly scared, um, straight into her inside bed. Um, last night at 3 o'clock in the morning, same thing, um, but this time when I let her in, it was if she hadn't seen me for a couple of weeks. Um, I'm just wondering whether um, a touch of dementia or a nightmare. 
yeah. and whether it's common. It, it certainly, um, yeah, certainly does happen. We see, we call it cognitive decline or cognitive dysfunction in dogs, um, but essentially it's very similar to dis- dementia in humans, um, and that can certainly happen. Um, it may also be that there's something else happening in your environment that you're not aware of because her hearing may still be a lot better than yours. Um, so there may be some loud noises starting to happen uh, in the night. Somebody's starting up a truck to head off to work or something along those lines. Um, and we know that dogs, as they get older, uh, any little anxieties tend to become um, progressively worse. And so it may be that that first night she woke up with a start and something frightened her, and now she's sort of keyed up to listening for it. And, and approximately the same time every night, you know, the neighbor a kilometer down the road is getting up, starting his noisy truck and heading off to work. Um, and, you know, she's picking that up and it's making her anxious. And so um, you, you know, she saw you last night and went, oh, thank goodness you're here to help and save me because there's <laughs> scary things happening. Um, so, you know, it can be a combination of a number of different things. It certainly um, dementia is something that we identify in dogs. Um, and often anxiety is a big part of that. And so it's not uncommon for us as vets to look at an older dog and owner say, you know, they never used to be afraid of loud noises or storms, but now we're, you know, seeing this behavior and that behavior. And, and a lot of our old dogs um, will go on to some sort of anti-anxiety medication just to help um, settle that down a little bit so that they can be more relaxed and comfortable in their environment. But do yeah, you think- she lives with me. Yeah. Uh, I'm the only one in the house. And um, a couple of months ago, she had a fairly big um, operation to her mm-hmm. stomach. Yeah. And um, she's normally been an outside dog. Um, yeah. But um, since that operation... Uh, it's just all about me. Yeah. Um, very rarely leaves me alone. Yeah. Um, and she's 12. Um, so, yeah, I was just wondering more so along the lines of um, dementia or, yeah. or the bad dream yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. I don't, I, I can't say about bad dreams. I know, we know dogs dream. My dog dreams every night. She's chasing somebody's cat, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, dementia and, and changing anxiety patterns is really, really common. And, you know, whatever we can do to make her feel comfortable um, often just bringing them in um, you know giving them a bed inside so they're not outside um, so she's feeling a little bit closer to you might might be enough or sometimes even just putting them into an enclosed um, space like a little cave a, a crate or kennel outside can be helpful just to sort of reduce their anxiety a little bit so yeah 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 okay, okay. All right, well thanks very much for that thanks oh, that's what we're here for good one Kimberly always here to answer questions and help out I just think Doug might have to have another bed buddy in there oh uh, <laughs> yeah I don't do Labradors in beds personally but that's a lot of hair big. they're too big a lot of hair a lot of rolling mm. a lot of snoring mm. taking your calls 49216216 uh, we've got Rob on the Line. Uh, have you got a comment or a question for Kimberly today? Uh, yeah, how, how you going? Yeah, we're good. Uh, listen, I've got a 18 month old beagle male pup. Yep. And um, the other day I was out mowing the yard and I heard, heard him barking and I went out and the, my next door neighbour at the back was banging on the fence. I couldn't see him, but he's aggravating the dog. Mm-hmm making a bark, and I went up and I said, what, what's going on? He said, oh, your dog's barking. I said, yeah, because you're doing this. Anyway, that afternoon I was inside, and next minute I did bang, 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 and he's, he's, he's in a double-story place. I'm in a single story, and he's standing on the patio with a cap gun shooting at the dog. Hmm. And ever since ever since then, my dog, like he used to be as bad as anyone, now he's just cowers. As soon as someone comes near him, he just cowers tries to get away like kids or anyone yeah. just taking a walk just taking a walk and kids would come up and he let them pat him now he just cowers and, and you know he hides behind his kennel and everything now I just want to know the best way to try and 
getting back to normal time. Yeah, well, I mean, that's going to take, it's, it's fairly recent, um, but obviously he's experiencing some, some trauma, you know, related to loud noises and things like that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I guess just being really careful about um, obviously trying to avoid that sort of situation, which is hard if it's your neighbour. So I think definitely having a discussion with your neighbour about that is probably yeah, really important. Yeah, I have, and they both just said we hate dogs and, you know, you know um, <laughs> Don't like dogs, and you shouldn't yeah. have a dog, and all this. You know? Yeah. And so then, you know, doing things like trying to avoid um, him being put in a situation where he's going to be there. So it may be that, um, you know, he needs to start spending more time uh, in the house. So he's yeah, he's, yeah. He's in the house all the yeah, time, but good. just over night, and um, like when I'm out, out the back, out the front, yeah. and on the yard, he's out the back, and that, and then um, you know, he just aggravates him. Yeah. Now he's just now he just cowers like it's he's gonna, on it. Yeah, it's going to take some time and, and really some desensitization and just, um, you know, work on keeping them nice and close to you. Um, yeah. Work on, um, you know, with, with kids, lots of positive rewards and treats and things like that. If he was previously good with kids, um, you know, then you want to try to get him into a situation where he's not feeling threatened, not feeling too nervous, that you're not forcing him to interact with the kids, but maybe the kids have his favorite treat and maybe um, over the course of a few minutes he, you know, becomes brave enough to come over and take a treat. But, you know, obviously desensitization and, and not putting too much pressure on him because we know that yeah. if we force dogs into situations where we're trying to trying to make it a positive um, experience for them but often forcing them will, will have the opposite effect. So, you know, it, it will probably happen again. He's a young dog and so hopefully he's um, capable of, you know, sort of getting over that sort of fear. Work on it sort of slowly and, and persistently and I'm trying to prevent him from being um, persistently or re- re-traumatized. But if it's not going well over the course of the next, you know, sort of um, few weeks to a couple months, then, then certainly have a chat with your regular vet about, um, you know, some potentially some pharmacologics that might help just reduce his overall level of anxiety because that can really help the relearning process for him. Oh, hello, Kim, you there? Yeah. Hello. Now, hello. what's, what's the problem? Me? Yes. Oh. But, yeah, we got you, Kim. Your dog's barking a lot. <laughs> um, well, I used to have a rainbow lorikeet that was really, really, really tame, and I got the rainbow lorikeet first. Anyway, um, being never having a bird before, didn't know how to treat the birds, and two other rainbow lorikeets came and landed in the yard. So I just thought, oh, isn't this nice? We'll go and see if they'll say hello. And so I put the rainbow lorikeet down amongst the older ones, and they savaged it. Yeah. Oh. And I had a little – my dog was a pup at the time, a very small puppy, and he just went ballistic at these birds. Now, um, ever since that, I've always kept my bird with an open cage. So the bird could come and go as the bird wanted. And I trimmed his, just a tiny bit of flight wing so he could get out of danger, get up trees. He used to visit all the neighbours and everything else. But I could call him and he would come home, which was fantastic. Only way to have a bird. In the meantime, the dog, because the cage was always open and there was food there, we always had birds coming into the yard, onto the veranda. The dog just has grown up being ballistic against birds. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime now, unfortunately, my beautiful bird has passed away, but my dog just goes ballistic with any birds, that even if they're flying over the top mm-hmm. of our yard. We're, we live in a very leafy area, and there's lots and lots of trees in my neighbour's yards that all hang into my yard, and I just cannot stop him. I've okay. tried 
treats. I've tried uh, citronella spray, like collar. Um, as a result, I've ended up getting, because I'm paranoid that something's going to happen to him, um, yeah, I've ended up getting one of those little buzz collars that I put on when he's extreme. So yeah. he barks when people come to the door, but when they come, he stops. Like, that's fantastic, yeah. you know. But it's the bird thing. He barks mm-hmm. at the birds all the time, and I cannot seem to stop it no matter what I do. Mm. So that's a real hard one because um, certainly for a cattle dog as well, they're... Um, you know they're pretty reactive dogs, and they're used to herding and things like that. And um, and they they bark sometimes when they're doing that. You know they run behind cattle and and they'll bark at them, and sort of direct them. Um, mm. And it's six years now, so you know six years of him um, uh, having this behaviour with potentially you know it's it's pretty significantly embedded in him. Um, I guess it's it's a it's a challenging thing without if if he's not got the stimulation, but obviously he's you know probably outside in the backyard and there's not much you can do about the um, the birds flying out and around him. It's it's going to be a hard um, you know without sort of keeping him in an area where he doesn't have access to see them or to um, I don't know if it's just the the seeing or the um, auditory stimulation if he's hearing the, no, he you know the birds. Them. He sees them all right. Yeah. He's wrapping the trees that overhang our yard. Yeah. So, and like we used to have kookaburras come and land, yeah. and they don't anymore. <laughs> like, and yeah, they're not game. No, no well, and, and I mean, there's I lots mean, of dogs that will, dog. you know, are pretty Beautiful reactive. Dog. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of dogs that would be pretty reactive, and you know, um, certainly lots of birds, you know, coming into people's yards are are, are at risk of um, many things, <laughs> you know, coming in contact yeah. with a dog like that. But yeah, it's certainly a, a challenging, a challenging sort of uh, thing for him because that stimulation is. Um, he's in an outdoor environment and you can't really do anything about the wild birds sort of flying over. Um, citronella collars, yeah, they're they're pretty variable and, and the um, the shot collars are really not um, that recommended. They're they're not legal in New South Wales and um, and they don't tend to be a useful um, sort of deterrent for lots of dogs. Some dogs um, will work it out pretty quickly, but they're they're a punishment based system and he, he, you don't have a way. You know, punishment is really useful only if you've got a dog who's doing an inappropriate behavior. But we always talk about barking is a natural, normal behavior for dogs. So you're not liking what he's doing, but it is a natural behavior, and that's where he's getting his stimulation um, from at this is stage. Is there a ca- those calming mm-hmm. hormone sprays? Yeah, that something might help? like Adaptal, yeah. um, you know, which is a which is a pheromone. Um, there's sprays, there's diffusers, there's collars. There's also like different that. tablets, like a tranquil almost tablet, but yeah. more natural essences and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, you could try some tried. of those. Oh. Or you could try some. Where, anti- where do I get those? Where do I? Um, pet stores would have them. Mm. Um, okay, but I was just thinking in terms of if he's. In a calmer state, he might not be he reacting not be as, as much, as much yeah. on the birds, and then he'll slowly start noticing. Oh, they're not doing anything; they're just flying around. They're mm-hmm. not hurting me. They're not coming. It's just... not so much the ones flying over; it's more the ones that are in the trees that overhang my yard. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. and it's massive. Like there's a cantaloupe tree here that must be I don't know eighty years old. It's yeah. massive. So I mean, and he's a cattle did. dog, and they're they're pretty good at. Um, you know, guiding their territory as well as, you know, so he may be remembering that event early on in his childhood or his puppyhood and um, he's he's guarding his territory from those yeah. nasty, noisy birds. Really quickly, uh, Kimberly, can Kim mm. retrain at all? Is there is there a way that she can start retraining with, um, with the positive treats? I know that um, Kim yeah, said she had tried. Yeah, it's 
tricky because you you can't really control the stimulus is the thing. So we always talk about um, redirect and distract. Um, and, you know, it's hard because you can't, in her situation, she's going to struggle to be there all the time, you know, unless she moves the dog into the mm, house okay. and we've only got supervised time outside in the yard. So he's not practicing that behavior. And that's the real challenge that we have in this instance. So we've got Annette from Maryland. You've got a question about surrendering dogs, Annette. Yes, I have. Um, I have a nephew that's terminally ill mm-hmm. and he's got to get rid of these dogs. He has two scrappies. A male, it's only young, it's only uh, under 12 months old, and a female who's about six years. Mm-hmm. And she's, they're, they're very quiet, they love a lot of attention, and they're very good with children. Right, okay. But he can't afford to surrender them to the RSPCA because it's going to cost him $100 a dog. Mm. Um, okay. okay, that's interesting. Um yeah, I guess there's, there are some organizations around who would be able to help, and you could certainly go, um, you know, on online and have a look, speak to the, the folks at Dog Rescue Newcastle, even, um, you know, putting up a, a post on Facebook and just, you know, sort of saying, yeah, listen, we, this is we the... Yeah, we put a post up on Facebook, but we never got any reply. I would get in yeah. touch with Dog Rescue Newcastle. They yeah. would certainly help you out. Sue Barker is the person to ask for. Yeah. And have you, got a, you have a phone number? You hold on the line and we'll help you out, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Thank uh, you very much. You're welcome. Now, quickly, before we go, Kimberly, uh, it's Zoonosis Week. Yes, apparently it's Zoonosis Week. So this is a um, Biosecurity Australia or Biosecurity New South Wales initiative that they're doing in conjunction. They're, they're doing quarterly um, Zoonosis Awareness Weeks for the year. So there's four of them. Um, and they're going to have their second one is going to coincide with World Zoonosis Day. So for those of you who aren't aware, a zoonosis or a zoonotic disease is a disease that can be passed from animals to humans. Um, and sometimes they're very mild and sometimes they're very severe. And so um, in small companion animal work that we do, we um, deal with zoonosis on a pretty common basis. So um, all of my staff, my nurses anyway, we're all vaccinated against Q fever, which is a disease um, that can be transmitted during um, with dogs and dogs that are pregnant. Um, it traditionally was thought of just being a cattle disease, but now it's um, we know that dogs can carry it as well, so that's really important. Chlamydia is one with birds that we see as well that can cause respiratory problems. So um, it's an interesting initiative if you can go online and have a look about it. Okay, and if you want more details, we've got a podcast on 2NURFM.com. We're out of time. Thank you both for coming in. Bye-bye. Danny, Kimberly, see talk you. to you soon. Bye. <laughs>